Oh, good morning. I think I'm far enough away from everybody else to take that off. Is that all right? Better not throw it away. I'll need it. All right, we're going to continue our series uh, through Romans 12. And um, let's pray and ask the Lord just to meet us where we're at and to speak with us this morning to maybe still anxieties in our hearts or to embolden us to continue to follow after him. Lord, will you meet us as we pray? We thank you that even in the, the differences as we meet this morning, not being able as a congregation to sing our praises openly and clearly, but yet, Lord, you are in both mountaintop experiences where you turn up in fire and you are also in the cave, the, the still, quiet voice that meets us. So, Lord, as we now just turn to your word, tune our hearts, Lord, to hear what you're saying to us this morning. We pray this, always calling out to Jesus to be our help. In his name we pray. Amen. All right, I'm going to give you my big idea for this morning straight up front. And then from there, I'm going to go to our passage in Romans 12. So you can be finding that, Romans chapter 12. But the big idea that I have for you this morning is this. The gospel will not tolerate being included as an accessory to our community. It must be so pervasive that it fuels everything we do. I'm going to read it to you again. The gospel will not tolerate being included as an accessory to our community, something that we just add on. It must be so pervasive that it fuels everything we do. That's my summary, my big idea from Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 10, which is the verses that we're going to give our attention to this morning. So let's read those together. Um, normally, I would ask you to stand and do that, but we're just going to stay seated today, and I'm going to read it to you from the Christian Standard Bible, Romans chapter 12, starting from verse 9. It says this, Let love be without hypocrisy. Detest evil. Cling to what is good. Love one another deeply as brothers and sisters take the lead in honouring one another. So from that, and considering our big idea that the gospel will not tolerate being included as an accessory to our community, it must be so pervasive that it fuels everything that we do, there are three indications that I think from those two verses, three indications of what I would see as being a very healthy community of people who are shaped by the gospel. So the good news about Jesus, it does something in our life. That's what we've been talking about, not only as individuals, but also as a church. And from those two verses, I want you to notice that there are three, I think, healthy indications of a gospel culture that exists. So here's the first one. It's taken from Romans chapter 12 and verse 9. And I would say we could describe this as being a high moral pursuit. 
a high moral pursuit. So just let's read verse 9 again, just so it's fresh in our minds. Let love be without hypocrisy, detest evil, cling to what is good. All right, so let's just break those down a little bit and think about it. So the first key phrase in that verse is love without hypocrisy. How would you define hypocrisy? Or you could rephrase that question, what does someone have to do for you to consider them to be a hypocrite? All right? Now, if you're sitting next to a family member or uh, someone in your household, you could discuss that for a couple of, you know, 30 seconds or something, or in your own mind, you can come up, or if you're taking notes, how would I define hypocrisy? In its most basic sense, so if you break down the parts of that word, hypocrite, um, the root meaning of that word actually means play actor, all right? Play actor. Most of us, though, understand it more by its common usage. To describe a person who puts on a, um, um, maybe a false display of virtue, right? Or they deliberately say one thing, but they intentionally do another. We usually think of hypocrites as being preachy sort of people, right? Uh, but inconsistent in their own lives. Or people who love to tell everyone else how to live, but fail to live it themselves. But all of that got me thinking, that's what it looks like when we think about hypocrisy in general. How does one love hypocritically? Because that's what that verse is warning us against, right? How does one love hypocritically? What does it mean to love someone, in the positive sense, as Paul puts it, without hypocrisy? So let me try and answer that by first thinking about what we know about love. What are the key words, the key verses even, that come to mind um, when we think about love in the Bible? Well, probably... Well, at least the first one that came to my mind was that very famous verse, John 3, 16, okay? For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Or its twin, 1 John 3, 16. By this we know love, that He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. All right, so already, just from those two verses, probably we can start to draw some conclusions about what is love. Imagine for a moment, go back to John 3 16, that's the one that probably is most common in our minds, most uh, familiar to us. Imagine if the most famous verse in the Bible said, For God so loved the world that he shrugged his shoulders and said, all the best with that. 
I hope, praise God, he didn't, right? 1 John 3, 16, this is how we know what love is. That he laid down his life for us. Love does something. It does for all. God demonstrates that. In that same book, 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, we actually see a, a more accurate picture. More accurately, it's not love did something. More accurately, it is love is someone. Because 1 John 4 and 8 says, the one who does not love does not know God because God is love right? So I think you can probably see how love should be displayed. For God so loved the world that He gave. This is how we know what love is. He laid down His life for us. We can see what love should be and probably we can infer then what love shouldn't be. We're starting to see how love can be hypocritical. So if we go back to that passage again in 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, but we read the verses that follow it again, let's read it together. This is how we know what love is, or this is how we have come to know love. He laid down His life for us. We should lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has this world's goods and sees a fellow believer in need but withholds compassion from him, how does God's love reside in him? Little children, let us not love in word or speech but in action and truth. Right, that's where the rubber meets the road, right? Love that talks the talk but refuses to walk the walk is hypocritical love. Right, we can't confuse that though with someone who sees a need but maybe doesn't have the ability or the capacity to meet that need. This is about someone who refuses compassion, they refuse to serve, they refuse to give, even though they could. So Romans 12 and 9 again. Let love be without hypocrisy. Let love be more than just the words that we speak. Let love be something that can be seen and experienced. Let love be without hypocrisy. That's our first indication that there's this sense of this high moral pursuit, that we're more than just a community who claims the name of Christ and says, isn't it great that we all love each other, but nothing goes beyond the words that we speak. Paul says, don't let that be the type of community that you are. Here's the second thing that I want you to notice about that opening verse, though. 
Clinging involves letting go. Clinging involves letting go. Let's continue to read the second part of that verse, Romans 12 and 9. Let love be without hypocrisy. We just thought about that. Detest evil. Cling to what is good. Right? That's the second way that the gospel shapes a healthy gospel culture by forming a devoted community, especially in creating a high moral pursuit. It's by showing us what we should cling to, what we should hold on to. So let me tell you a story about when I was a kid, uh, in my early teens. One of my favourite pastimes, when I was about 13 or 14 years old, I lived in um, a town by the name of Harvey Bay, up on the east coast in Queensland, a few hours, about four or five hours or so from Brisbane. One of my favourite pastimes, when the, the wind particularly blew from the north, um, Harvey Bay is a protected area, it's protected by Fraser Island on the, out the sea, and so we get no surf, no swell rolling onto the coast at Harvey Bay. But when the wind blew from the north, the ocean, uh, Fraser Island didn't protect the coastline anymore, and it would whip the waves up. Now, it wasn't big swell like you get on the Gold Coast or the Sunshine Coast and all that sort of stuff, but it was wild and rough. And we would go down, my friends and I, down to like the rocky shoreline near where I lived, and as these waves came crashing in, we would climb out onto the rocks and cling onto a rock and basically see who was the last person to get knocked off. Um, don't judge, there wasn't a lot to do in my sleepy little town. Um, that's how we had fun. All right, we, we'd go down to the beach, find a spot where the, the wind-whipped waves were crashing over the rocks, and we would, we would tease one another, we would malign each other's manlyhood, and we would say, you go out onto that rock, I'll go out onto that rock, you're not a real man if you don't do this. And we would just cling on. It didn't matter if the barnacles were cutting us or the oysters were there. We would just hold on and hold on. And every wave that would hit, you'd just be holding on some precarious position, waiting for that onslaught of waves to come in. All right? It was stupid. Don't do it. All right? It was still kind of fun, though. All right? At least it was for us at the time. It was, it was a dumb, juvenile pastime. The worst that ever happened was when my mate Nigel was tumbled over the rocks and he emerged somewhat debarked. You know, we got home and, what are you kids been doing? Oh, nothing, just fell off my bike, you know. We're soaking wet. <laughs> but, um, but here's the point. Look, the waves were never really that big. They felt big to us when we were 13. It felt pretty dangerous. The, the, the waves were never that big. Our lives were never really in danger. But I can remember cling, clinging on with grim resolve, not because I thought I was going to die if I, fell, if I fell off, but because I just didn't want to be the last person. I, I didn't want to be the first person, right, to be, to be knocked off. I wanted my mates to all be like, yeah, yeah, you did it, that was great, you know, and... But what if the stakes had been higher? What, what if it hadn't been on the P 
peaceful shores of Harvey Bay, what if it had been down near the bogey hole here at Newcastle with a big sea running? Where every year there are people who have been washed away and lost their lives. What if the waves were bigger? What if the drop-off was greater? Things would have been different, right? My clinging on would have shifted to another gear. I wouldn't have just been fighting for childish bragging rights. I would have been clinging on for life. Sometimes holding fast is a life and death experience. And so it is in our spiritual life. Here's the thing about clinging on. You can't cling on tightly if you have still got something in your hands. I I can't cling to a rock to keep safe if I've still got my phone in my hand. A fool would let go of a rock to grasp at a phone or anything else worth less than your life. And so we have to ask ourselves, are we fools? What are we holding on to in life and what are we clinging to? What are we letting go? Ask you the question, what are you clinging to? And what do you need to drop? Because Romans 12 and 9 says, detest evil, cling to what is good. So when we want to cling on to something, more often than not, we've got to decide what we're going to let go. What we need to get rid of, what we need to detest. So often in our life, we want the best of both worlds, don't we? We want, we want this, but we don't want to let go of that. And we say, I really want that. I really want to cling to the rock. And we can say, well, we'll let go of this. You're like, no, I want to keep that. I want to hold that. Paul's saying we can't. To cling, we've got to let go. Let go of the right things. Clinging involves letting go. The next big theme in these verses, Romans 12 and 10. So not only does the gospel shape in us a high moral pursuit, it also shapes in us a deep relational commitment. Romans 12 and 10, have a look at it. Love one another deeply as brothers and sisters. Take the lead in honouring one another. I want you just to focus on love one another deeply as brothers and sisters. Here's the thing, hypocritical love is easy. That's the easiest type of love there is, right? Because it doesn't cost anything. It, it makes lots of promises. It says, this is what we will do. I'll be here for you. You can count on me. But then it doesn't show up. Flattering words don't cost anything. 
even superficial sentiments about our care for one another or our affection are worthless, real love is willing to go beneath the surface and to do hard things. Real love will be willing to pay an exorbitant price. Deep love always pushes us beyond where we're comfortable. I want you to consider what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. Part of his Sermon on the Mount, or what we call the Sermon on the Mount chapters. Matthew 5, verse 43 says this, You have heard it said, Love your neighbour and hate your enemy. But I tell you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Or later in that same book, Matthew 22, verse 37, Jesus says to him, Love the Lord your God with what? All your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. The second is like it, love your neighbour as yourself. Or maybe the most famous love chapter of them all, 1 Corinthians 13. Paul says, if I speak human or angelic tongues but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so that I can move mountains, but if I don't have love, I am nothing. And if I give away all my possessions... And if I give over my body in order to boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. It is not boastful, is not arrogant, is not rude, is not self-seeking, is not irritable and does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Man, I wish we read that more often than just at weddings. This is what the gospel does. This is is what the good news of Jesus does. It loves beyond where we think love can stretch. Maybe you'll say to me, well, hang on, Chris. Surely you're not saying that love extends that far, right? You don't understand. You don't don't know my circumstances. And you're right. I probably don't know your circumstances, but God does. And Romans 5 and 6 says, for while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. 
Or Romans 5 and 8 says, but God proves his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't say, you get your act together and then I will love you. When when you shape up, then I will step in. Christ died for the ungodly. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God knows how far love can stretch. And it stretches further than we could ever imagine it could. And so Paul turns to us in Romans 12 and he says, listen, you've been shaped by that same love. That's the love that God has poured out into your life. And so he says, love one another deeply, deeply as brothers and sisters. All right, let's take that last phrase from Romans 12 and 10 now. Take the lead in honouring one another. Take the lead in honouring one another. Last week, if you were here or you were listening in, I said that in Christian relationships, we don't need to try and outdo one another. That we have nothing to prove and that we should live in a sense of gospel interdependency where we find our identity by who Christ says we are while we still get involved in each other's lives. Well, I was mostly right then, 99.9% right, I reckon. But here's the one place where I think there is some healthy competitiveness that should come into our community life as Christians. Outdo one another in showing honour or take the lead in showing each other honour. So here's the game that we're going to play from now on in, all right? It's like youth group, I'm going to explain a game to you. We all start at the beginning of each week with a scoreboard zeroed out, all right? Zero, zero. Beside each of our names is going to be a column where a running tally can be made. You get points by elevating another person's worth and treasuring who that person is made to be by Christ. At the end of the week, we will tally up the points to see who outdid everybody else. A couple of small rule explanations that I need to give you so that you need to be aware of before we begin this week's round, okay? First one is this. Flattery is not the same as honour, all right? So that doesn't count. Flattery is false honour. Smooth words that seem to be directed toward someone else but are actually intended to reflect attention back to the one who gave them. If you do that, you're disqualified. All right? Your points don't count. Here's the second rule explanation. Points can't be transferred. You can't get honour points by association. When someone else is given honour, you can't share their points by telling everyone that you're part of their crew. All right? Therefore, enabling you to share in their honour. You can't say, well, I'm with those guys 
and I come from their corner, so I get their points. It doesn't work like that. Here's the third one. Points will be deducted if we honour people unfairly. Um, this rule was introduced in one of the earlier rounds of the competition by a guy named James. So funnily enough, we call it the James Clause. Here's how it works. Let's say someone comes into one of our gatherings. They look pretty sorted out. Nice clothes. Right? From a respectable store. They, um, they smell nice. They speak nice. They drive a new car. They also offer to buy us three new Black Magic Pocket Cinema cameras for our live streaming services. Amen. That's just a hypothetical example, all right? Well, if we take them and show them to a seat of honour, if we have one, do we have a seat of honour? Are you in it today? All right? Maybe you are, I don't know. Let's say we had a seat of honour, but we take them to that seat of honour and we say, listen, you get to sit here. And what if someone quickly rushes off to make them coffee, and not the instant variety, someone fires up the coffee machine and says, um, ooh, let's make them a really good cup of coffee. And what if most of us change our afternoon plans to make sure that we're free to be able to invite that person home for lunch? to make sure that when they left here, they felt deeply honoured. Sounds good, doesn't it? Lots of points in that one. But let's also imagine that on the same day, or maybe a different day, it doesn't really matter, somebody else came in here who looked almost the opposite of that. They were dressed in clothes that didn't really fit them and looked a bit shabby. You could smell them when they were standing in the foyer and it didn't smell so good. They spoke a bit rough, as though they maybe weren't very well educated. They were sweating because they'd walked from the nearest bus stop, which is quite a way from here. They looked embarrassed when we announced about where they could give their tithes and their offerings. So here's how the James Clause works. Unless you genuinely treat the second guest as well as the first, all your points from the first will be deducted. Okay, so apart from those rule qualifications, we're ready to play, aren't we? The objective, remember, is to outdo one another in showing honour. So let's get competitive. I'm serious. Let's get competitive with this. What a game, right? What a game to play. But tell me, who wins? Everyone, right? Everyone wins. Because you're trying to outdo giving honour. You're trying to see, how can I make these people around me elevated and feel worth in Christ? And everybody else is doing the same. And we all win because there would be a flavor of honor everywhere in this church. What a gospel culture that would be, that we would feel how Jesus loves through his church. 
Who wouldn't want to be a part of that? Here's where I'm going to wrap things up. This is what the gospel does. It creates a devoted community. Devoted to pursuing love for others that is deep and consistent. Devoted to a high moral pursuit by discarding anything that will cause me to lose my grip on what is good. It helps us to be devoted to deep relational commitment where we're willing to go beyond just the words that we speak and love shows up in action. And lastly, we are devoted to aggressively and competitively even giving honour. We should be the first to step in with encouragement, to lift, to elevate another person above ourselves. That's what the gospel does. It's what God has done in Christ for us. And it's what he's calling us to do for one another. So let's pray. Father, thank you for being with us this morning. Thank you for meeting us in your word. Thank you for the way that you shape us and form us, not all at once, but bit by bit as we gaze at the glory of Jesus Christ, we are transformed by one degree of glory to another and you are shaping us to be a devoted community. Well, help us to know and see the things in our life that we just need to let go of as we cling to you. The things that are causing us to lose our grip, but I am thankful that you will never lose your grip on us. We are safe in your hands. But Lord, also help us to be people who love without hypocrisy. We want to be genuine in the way that we show our affection for each other, the way that we serve and love one another. And Lord, as we step out to outdo one another in honour, Lord, help us. We tend to be fairly selfish people. Our hearts are fairly inclined towards honour only when the honour is coming in our direction. So Lord, by your Spirit, will you just shape our hearts and reform us by the Gospel so that we would love and desire to honour and elevate others. Lord, that's what we want this community to be like. We want other people to experience that also. And we thank you for your presence and your help in it. In Jesus' name, amen.